You are listening to the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and I want to know how we can make the show better for you. What would you like to improve? What would you like to change? Let me know on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, and I respond to all messages there personally. But to the show today, and I've wanted to interview this individual for a very long time, a serial entrepreneur and an incredible operator. And so with that, I'm very excited to welcome Parker Conrad, founder and CEO at Rippling, the startup that gives you back your time from payroll to employee computers. Rippling makes it unbelievably easy to manage your company's HR and IT in one simple system. To date, Parker's raised over $59 million in funding from some of the very best in the business, including Mamoon at Kleiner, Gary Tan at Initialize, Justin Khan, SV Angel, and Y Combinator, just to name a few. As for Parker, prior to founding Rippling, he was the founder and CEO at Zenefiz, the startup he built from naught to $60 million in ARR in just three years. Before that, he co-founded Sigfig, where he grew assets on the platform to over $35 billion across 500,000 users. And I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin, Mamoon Hamid, and Gary Tan for some fantastic question suggestions today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the episode today, you have to check out Go Nimbly. Go Nimbly is the world's first revenue operations consultancy for SaaS companies. Revenue operations is a framework that makes revenue the key metric for your entire organization, resulting in more efficient and productive teams, a better customer experience, and maximized revenue. Go Nimbly helps companies create an operational roadmap and executes work as an extension of their internal team. Their founder, Jason, is also currently working on a book about how to transform your operations and increase your company's revenue by 26% through RevOps. You can check them out today at gonimbly.com. And if revenue is one core focus, your customers have to be the other. And Reviews.io is the first and only review platform to offer a truly unified Salesforce customer feedback management experience, enabling your business to save time and money while monitoring and improving customer service and revenue. In addition to Salesforce integration, Reviews.io also announces competitor analysis. This powerful tool gives businesses updated review scores and history for their chosen competitors, allowing them to spot trends in customer sentiment and take swift action. Collecting reviews for your business with Reviews.io, a Google-licensed review partner, improves online visibility, click-through rates, and conversion by introducing star ratings across paid and organic Google search results. And even better, Reviews.io integrates with 30 online platforms. For your free product demo, sign up now at Reviews.io or search Reviews.io in the Salesforce app exchange and listeners get a free 30-day trial by simply mentioning the podcast when they sign up. And last but by no means least, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a week pay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform. Fusebill ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Hi, Harry. The tip for this week is to assign everyone in your company with a quarterly number. This ensures that everyone from the top down is rowing in the same direction. Report on the progress of these numbers in your one-on-ones and management meetings, then reset every quarter. You will be amazed at how powerful your team can be if everyone is focused on a quantifiable goal every quarter. Heck, add a monetary incentive to it and see records get broken. Totally with Tyler on that one. And measurable objectives with incentives are a great way to drive growth. And you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough from me. So now I'm very, very excited to hand over to Parker Conrad, founder and CEO at Rippling. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. 
Parker, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I've heard so many good things from Gary Tan, from Mamoon Hamid, but thank you so much for joining me today, Parker. Yeah, thanks for having me. Not at all, but I'd love to get the ball rolling today with you. So Rippling is the fourth startup for you, but how did you make your first foray into the world of startups one? And then what was that aha moment with Rippling in a pretty seamless three to four minutes? Well, so actually, I think it's the third, which is still a lot, but not four yet. For me, with Rippling, the kind of central premise of the company is that I think employee data is a lot more distributed across an organization than most people realize. Most people think of employee data as something that's an HR thing. And I actually think almost every business system that companies use is full of information about their employees. And that secretly, that's the root cause of almost all of the sort of administrative crap work involved in running a business. That companies that think like, gosh, like there's just a lot of work day-to-day running systems, setting things up. All of that kind of ties back to the fact that whenever you hire people or terminate them or whenever really anything changes, you need to go update all these different systems. And that's kind of what led me to start Rippling. But as we said, I spoke to some of the investors beforehand, especially Mamoon, and a couple of friends also said that in terms of running the organization, you have a willingness to do unconventional things to scale. And they said you know, a couple and why they work. The first is customer support. So tell me, Parker, what do you do that may be unconventional when it comes to customer support? So I have a really weird view of how startups should do this, which is that Rippling is a company that's now about 90 people. We have over a thousand customers, sort of in the millions of dollars of ARR. And we don't yet have a customer support team. We're just making our first sort of one to two hires in the company. And that's pretty late to be doing that. And what we do, and I think it works really well, is to date, the engineers in the company and myself as well have done all of the customer support for the business. And I really think that that's the way most startups should do it for as long as they possibly can. And the reason is, is that support teams often end up becoming walls in the organization to keep customers from bothering your engineering team because your engineers are working on important things. And it makes it very, very hard for engineers to really truly understand what to work on and to have the appropriate context around what needs to be done within the product. And if you can start by having engineers doing customer support and maintain that for as long as possible, I think it's really hard once you do hire support to sort of go back to this model. What's really neat is the engineering team has sort of like perfect context on what the problems are that customers are facing. And they can make these kind of trade-offs in their own head around should I stop working on this other project to fix this one thing really quickly that's going to have a big impact? Or should I postpone working on this other thing because you know there's this sort of larger investment that we need to make that's more impactful? And I think that like when companies do build out support organizations, a lot of how you do support and product management ends up becoming sort of a way to try and recreate imperfectly the dynamic that you have early on in companies where the people building the product are the ones that are like talking to customers and handling their pain points. So it's one of the things that I'm kind of proudest about with Rippling is that we've been able to maintain, first of all, extremely high ratings online for how good our support is without, to date, really having anyone in the support function. And I think that's made our product a lot better. And I think it's one of those things that like every tech company should be doing. So I'm totally with you there in terms of the benefits of engineers being on the front lines of customer support and the danger that happens when you have like handoffs like customer support and how much data actually gets fed back to the engineer team. My question to you is actually, Parker, how do you structure the time of the engineers in terms of how they allocate it to customer support? And then how do you also approach the culture and the mentality element for them of ensuring that they're aligned with you in realizing that this is part 
of the pivotal aspect of their role and not just like an hour a week of annoyance that Park is making me do. So really, it's not that people are sort of in charge of being on support for a certain amount of time. The way we do it is Rippling ends up, you know, we have about 65 engineers in the company right now. And they're kind of seven or eight loosely federated teams. You know, we have a team that works on our payroll product, a team that works on our, you know, hardware product. Each of those teams are like relatively small. They're sort of, you know, six, seven people, eight people. And those teams are responsible for supporting their own products. And so each of everyone on that team sees every support request that comes in about their product. And the engineering leads are in charge of sort of allocating that out and figuring out who's covering support tomorrow and who's handling this issue or that issue. And so we're not at a point yet where within those teams, we need much more rigorous tracking systems where someone, there's like ticket assignment. Right now, it's kind of like within those teams, it's still small enough that it can be done informally. Can I ask, does this approach scale, Parker? I don't think it will scale forever. And so I think the goal for most companies should be to sustain it as long as you can, because what it does is it really turns customer support into an R&D exercise. You know, every support ticket is an opportunity to think through how could we avoid having to get this support ticket in the future? Like, how could we make the product clearer? How could we avoid the confusion, fix the bug? And as soon as you move away from that, and eventually you have to, but as soon as you do, it gets much harder to create this open line of communication back from the front lines of the support team back to the engineering team. You end up having these kinds of structures and companies where you can't have 20 support people going and bugging an engineer. So they sort of collect a bunch of issues and it gets passed up the support organization hierarchy and up to the executive team and through the product executives and eventually, you know, back down to sort of like individual engineers. And there's just so much that's like lost in that game of telephone. And there are a lot of things that kind of slip through the cracks. And if you build really effective product organizations, you can start to get back to this sort of initial perfect state where the person building the product is the person supporting the product. But it's like, can't really, I think, get much better than that. And so I think you want to kind of sustain that for as long as possible. One thing that we're doing is actually the way we're thinking about support in these teams is that we're actually having these individual engineering teams like hire support almost into the engineering team. So the support reps are still reporting up through a support lead, but they're culturally and physically co-located with the product and engineering teams that they're working on. So, you know, the payroll support team is like sitting with and use themselves as part of our payroll team. And the insurance support team sees themselves as being on the insurance team first and foremost and the support organization second. I'm really interested because you said there about sitting alongside. And what I straight away thought to was kind of an unconventional thing that's actually now become a lot more mainstream in terms of its acceptance being the element of remote work. We saw, I think it was last week that Stripe's fifth location will be remote work as a location. I do have to ask, in terms of remote locations, how do you feel about the movement towards remote? What's your approach with Rippling? And how does that factor into how you think about operational excellence and building and scaling the team? So at Rippling, we have about two-thirds of the company that's actually in Bangalore, in our Bangalore office. So our San Francisco office is actually the, the smaller of the two locations. And my view on remote work is that I think that remote teams is the, the worst way to build a company except for all the others. <laughs> you know, today, it just, I think, really isn't possible. It would be nice to be able to sort of locate everyone in San Francisco. And I think that just isn't possible. But I, I think there are still enormous advantages to having a real presence in the city, particularly for the executive team. I think 
companies are being forced into the situation of having distributed teams. I mean, one of the things I think that it changes a lot of the way companies need to operate. You, know, you have issues across time zones. And so in our company, there are people who kind of work like a really early shift and leave early. And there are people who kind of come in late and work a late shift because they need to, they need to have time on either end to talk with the folks in India or the folks in India need to speak with the folks in the US. You see things like Zoom that become really critical, obviously, for teams that are, you know, you have to have like really solid, just error-free communication services. And I actually think there's a place for rippling in this because one of the things that happens is the administrative complexity of managing all of these different business systems and employee onboarding and stuff like that. You know, at, at a traditional company, when you hire someone, they sit down and with HR for the first day or two to kind of bang everything out. Someone hands them a computer, gets them their company t-shirt, gives them some forms to fill out. And you can't really do that for someone who's in a different state. And one of the neat things about Rippling is by bringing all that online and tying it together, you hire someone in Rippling and like their computer ships out automatically. They get access to all these systems at the click of a button. Their box of company swag, you know, ships out to their home address. You can deal with things like employment eligibility, like I-9 verification online, as opposed to having to do it in person. You know, all of that stuff, you know, becomes a lot more critical as companies get more distributed and you have people that work for your company across the world, not just in the US. And so you need suddenly these business systems, you know, most of which have been built in sort of like a US only fashion. You really need to be able to handle someone who's based in India or Brazil or in the UK. And you need to be able to pay that person through the system. And you need to be able to treat them as like, you know, just part of the same work chart as everyone else in the company. And, you know, Rippling was really built from day one in that kind of internationalized way to support a lot of these distributed teams. Can I ask, in terms of the distributed teams, now you've been through that process of building out, as you said, two thirds of the team there in India. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started that process of building out the distributed team? I think, you know, it's just really critical who the kind of first couple hires are on a distributed team. And I think we got very lucky with this. A person that we hired to start our office in India is someone just really incredible who's done a great job building that organization. I wish we had more of him. And I think we kind of like lucked into that. And thinking back on it, it's almost like the person that starts when you do these kind of remote offices, the person who kind of starts the office is almost like a company founder themselves. They're going to just set a lot of the tone for the norms of behavior at the new location, how things operate, how do people interact with one another? So it's it just ends up being like really critical who you who you choose to do that. I do have to ask it in terms of critical. I got asked by Gary to ask this critical question. He said that you have a very ambitious and slightly crazy idea in terms of the super big vision of the app store for SaaS. And when we chatted before, you said about all IT software being thought of as HR software. So can I ask Parker? I was trying to think through this. These are all the bold and potentially brilliant ideas the same? And how do you think about and unpack them? Well, so I think the kind of crazy idea behind Rippling is that if you think about what IT people are doing most of their day, and what's kind of the cornerstone of IT security, it's really about making sure that the right people have access to the right systems in your company, and they have the right levels of access and the right configuration within those systems. That's sort of a large part of what IT and IT security is ultimately responsible for. But if you think about that, almost all of those decisions are based on these underlying 
concepts like who are your employees and what do they do for your company and what's their job function? Like, are they in sales? Are they in engineering? Are they SDRs or account executives? Are they managers or directors? Because that's what sort of defines everything about what they should have access to and how they should be configured and how they should be set up across almost all of these different business systems. And those kinds of concepts are really inseparable from these underlying HR concepts like department and role and level and work location. And I think that a lot of the sort of IT systems that have been built to date have really missed this because they think of the world in terms of users. And users have attributes like a username and a password and maybe groups and policies assigned to them. But I think that most of these systems, like for example, Okta, Okta really should be built where the sort of centerpiece of the data model is the employee. And the employee has attributes like they're a 1099 hire or they're a W-2 hire or they're full-time or part-time or exempt, non-exempt, salaried, hourly. They have a whole set of department, a department hierarchy that's associated with them, levels, work locations, teams, titles, managers. And those are the things that are driving almost every decision that IT people have to make about how they manage all these systems. And if you could bring those things together, the world gets a lot easier because the sort of underlying HR characteristics of the employee are what's driving everything that happens in IT. I don't think that sounds nearly as crazy as I thought it was going to be. It sounds totally logical when you present it like that. I do have to take this chance though, Parker. As I said before the show, I spoke to many friends of yours and mine and I had to do an AMA, Ask Me Anything with Parker. And so these are the questions that I'm too fascinated not to ask. How does that sound? Are you ready? Sure, of course. Okay, so you've been a founder and CEO multiple times. Can I ask, how's your style and maybe approach to being CEO changed over the years? I think one thing is that I think happens to a lot of repeat founders is you develop just a much better appreciation of all of the different functional areas of the company and sort of why each of them need to be excellent. And like really great companies, they tend to be really good at all of the different functional parts of the business. You know, the Google is, you know, obviously, you know, great at product and engineering, but they also have an incredible legal organization, incredible finance team. And, and I think a lot of first-time founders come at things from a particular perspective and, you know, early on, just have to focus on building something that people want. And sometimes once you get beyond that, it's hard to understand, you know, what the hell do all these other sort of parts of the company do? And, you know, I think I have like a particular appreciation for why do you need to have the best people in, you know, all of these different functional areas of the company and sort of why that's critically important. So, you know, we just raised our Series A. And so, you know, we're in the process of like building out that executive team right now. That's definitely something that I just feel like I'm in a much better position on than I was at previous endeavors. Yeah, no, absolutely. It makes sense. It's actually Elan Gill who said that management upscaling is one of the core <laughs> functions of CEOship. Would you agree with him in terms of kind of the prioritization around management upscaling as one of your core roles as CEO? By management upscaling? Making sure you have the best management team and making sure that you kind of create a pathway where they can level up with every stage and not have kind of severe management churn at every level. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's this constant tension as the company grows, the best thing for everyone is that the people who kind of started in a lot of these roles, they have so much context on how things were done and why certain decisions were made and when things are working at the company, why it works. That in the best world, you have people early on who can continue to grow with their job. That doesn't always happen. So, you know, sometimes you have to bring in new folks above them. But definitely like whenever you do that, there's a challenge because the person coming in is just lacking a ton of context about the organization 
information. And when things are moving really quickly, you lose a lot by just the time that they need to kind of get up to speed. So some of it is, yeah, trying to bring all of your executives along and have them grow into their roles. And some of it, quite frankly, probably a lot of it is trying to get, I think, like early on sort of over hiring for a lot of these executive roles so that if you really believe that you're building a, a large and impactful business, you know, hiring the person that is going to be appropriate for the job at 20 million in ARR, 50 million in ARR when you're only at four or five. Now that's easier said than done. That can be really hard to do, but that's ultimately like, if you can do that, that makes things so much easier down the line. Sorry, this is really unfair of me, but you, you built out brilliant exec teams before. What have been your biggest lessons in terms of really attracting that A-star exec talent and bringing in the 20 million ARR man or woman when you're at four, so to speak, and really getting them there at that stage? I think one thing that, you know, really does help is independent signals about the company. Having really good investors with great brands that invest in your business. One of the values that I think VC firms like really do bring to the table is that brand really signals something to prospective customers, to porters, the media, you know, at the larger community, but most importantly to job candidates who don't have the time to do the kind of diligence that VCs do. Look at it and they say, well, you know, Kleiner Perkins believe in, in this company, I should really check it out. And that makes a huge difference. No, I do totally agree with you there. And I'm so pleased you said about the round and KP there, because I do want to briefly touch on the Series A before we move into the quick fire. Obviously, you said you raised the Series A, huge congrats for that, but kind of famous now for without having a deck for it. So tell me, you've been through the process now multiple times in terms of fundraising. I guess my question is, what do you know now about the investing class that you wish you'd known when you founded your first company? And how do you approach a founder advice when it comes to fundraising? So my advice about fundraising is to really wait as long as possible to do it. So usually what I tell people is you should only go out and raise money when it is just so beyond a shadow of a doubt that people are going to want to invest in the company. And my experience with fundraising has always been that it takes a week or never. And I've had both. And it either, like every fundraising process I've ever done has either lasted about a week or it just kind of never came together at all. And so I think that when you're fundraising, most people decide, well, it's time for us to go out for a Series A. And sometimes you got to do that because you're running out of money and life sucks. But usually I think what you want to do ideally is you want to sort of just completely hold off on doing anything, talking to anyone, telling anyone about your, your the metrics of your business until you're at a point where it's so clear that this is an investable company that you can go out like a lightning bolt and just sort of shock and awe investors with what you've accomplished to date. And that's, I think, when fundraising processes go really well for businesses. Can I ask, I often hear on the show that founders should always be raising. Others say, no, you need to condense it and be very disciplined on a two-week timeline, collect term sheets after two weeks and run a very efficient process. What would your advice be around building relationships over the long term versus kind of the much more efficient and disciplined and structured approach? I think there, there's a balance on this. And I think the way I personally like to do it is to have meetings with folks ahead of time and talk with them about product, about the company, about sort of your view of the market, but sort of not really release any data about the company and sort of use that as the way when you do start fundraising, that's when you've kind of like assembled like, okay, we've got like a real package of, you know, all of the metrics that you need to see as an investor. And now we're ready to go. And we've been talking with you. Hopefully you're interested in the idea and the vision and and pain point that we're solving. And now here's everything you need to kind of evaluate the company and start with that. The important thing there is you talk with people and maybe you build a relationship, but you're very clearly not fundraising. And you're not fundraising because you're not 
sharing any of the underlying metrics about the business yet. If you're kind of constantly fundraising, it's really hard to get a deal done because there's no urgency around the process. And, and more importantly, everyone's kind of out of sync. If you do get a firm that's interested, it's very hard to round up other firms so that you can get into a pro- You know, Even if that first firm is absolutely your ideal partner, if you don't have a few other folks at the table, it's hard to sort of get things done on good terms. No, I do agree with you. And I think that's a very valid point. I, I do want to move into my favorite though, Parker, being the quick fire round. So I essentially say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. So tell me your favorite book and why. You know, I think the, the Lyndon Johnson biographies by Robert Caro, I think it's, it's like it has such an incredible amount of insight into someone who obviously became president of the United States and kind of all of his detail that he has around his thinking and decision-making and how sort of mapping out the entire thing. It's a really interesting read. What would you most like to change about tech in Silicon Valley, Parker? I would love, I mean, I don't know if this is directly about tech, but I wish that we could change the way immigration works here and that we could be bringing in, you know, sort of all of the talented, you know, every talented engineer that we could find around the world and not just, you know, not preventing them from coming to Silicon Valley, but finding ways to try and pull them in. I think that would be just like so much better for the US, for the ecosystem, for job creation. Tell me, Parker, what moment has changed the way you think? So probably for me, the biggest one was at the very first company that I started. We went out to raise a Series B round in January of 2009, which was the absolute worst time to raise a round of venture capital funding. And our company was in like no position to do it. I mean, it was not in a place that it was an investable business. And we talked to 70 different investors about trying to invest in the company. We got turned down by you know basically everyone. I sort of took away from that just the difficulty of raising capital unless unless you were in a position where like you know everything was working that's a brutal process tell me the biggest mentor to you and what have you learned the most from them probably just really more of a like a good friend is a guy named dave peterson who's um he was in my wife my original yc batch and dave is one of these um just like really sort of incredible hustlers in thinking about customer acquisition and how do you develop top of the funnel demand and i think i've learned a ton from him about how to just like make things happen. Absolutely love that. Tell me, what's your biggest challenge for you today in your role with Rippling, Parker? The biggest challenge right now is going from a company that was really, for most of its history, just an engineering team that then became a company with an engineering team and you know a small sales team attached to it to one that now needs sort of like all of these different functional areas the company built out. So we're today a 90-person company with about 65 engineers and very little beyond engineering and sales and marketing, but we're very quickly adding support function, legal, finance, HR, you know, all of those different other areas. No, absolutely. It's an exciting and big rollout. Tell me, how do you deal with shit hit the fan moments? What's your coping mechanism? Mostly, it's sort of understanding that like this too shall pass. And I think one of the things that's been different for me working on my third company versus the first two, you know, everything feels a little more muted. So the highs are like a lot less high and the lows are a lot less low. Because even on good days when things go really well, you're always kind of like, well, yep, something's probably going to go wrong tomorrow. And so you don't, you don't get like, you know, you don't get as much of an upper for when things are going really well. But this, by the same token, when things go really badly, there's always a sense of like, look, I've been through this before and survived. And so, you know, we're, we're going to make it through this as well somehow. No, I totally agree. Nothing's ever as good or as bad as it seems, I always think. Tell me the final one, the next five years for you and for Rippling, just how big could this be, Parker? <laughs> well, so I think the really big idea behind Rippling is that companies have this administrative pain of managing lots of business systems that I think 
comes directly from the fact that you need all of these systems need to know, you know, who your employees are. And employees have to be set up in all of them. And that's what makes it difficult to have a lot of different systems. But there's sort of a twin pain for all of the companies that make business software, which is that for a lot of SaaS companies, you know, you go out one of the biggest objections that you get as a business is like, ugh, not another system. You know, I don't want to deal with like something else in my company. And so I think that there's this iceberg effect in SaaS, that the only systems that make it or the only products that become companies are the ones that are so big and poor to what a company does that they can kind of clear that sort of, you know, not another system bar. And I think that, you know, if Rippling, our goal is, I think if we can bring the marginal work required of managing the N plus one system within a company down to zero, then I think businesses would buy a lot more of them. And I think there are companies that become viable that maybe do one very niche thing in really incredible way that can be built on or alongside a lot of the infrastructure that we have as a company. And and because it's sort of painless, employers don't have to go manage all the information about their employee and employees in this other system. Someone's going to build fancy org charts, and that's going to become a whole business that's hard to do today because, like, just managing the data about your employees in that third-party system is so hard. But with something like Rippling, you know, as as Rippling is successful, that becomes like a viable business that can just sort of plug into the underlying employee data as a service that we provide and have like a really sort of viable experience for companies. Listen, Parker, as I said, I heard so many good things from Mamoon and from Gary Tan. So it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. And I couldn't be more excited for the future with Rippling. Great. Thank you very much. I mean, just what an incredible guest. If you'd like to see more from Parker, you can find him on Twitter at Parker Conrad. Likewise, I'd love to see you behind the scenes here at SAST. You can do that on Instagram at hdebbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, you have to check out GoNimbly. GoNimbly is the world's first revenue operations consultancy for SaaS companies. Revenue operations is a framework that makes revenue the key metric for your entire organization, resulting in more efficient and productive teams, a better customer experience, and maximized revenue. GoNimbly helps companies create an operation operational roadmap and executes work as an extension of their internal team. Their founder, Jason, is also currently working on a book about how to transform your operations and increase your company's revenue by 26% through RevOps. You can check them out today at gonimbly.com. And if revenue is one core focus, your customers have to be the other. And Reviews.io is the first and only review platform to offer a truly unified Salesforce customer feedback management experience, enabling your business to save time and money while monitoring and improving customer service and revenue. In addition to Salesforce integration. Reviews.io also announces competitor analysis. This powerful tool gives businesses updated review scores and history for their chosen competitors, allowing them to spot trends in customer sentiment and take swift action. Collecting reviews for your business with Reviews.io, a Google licensed review partner, improves online visibility, click-through rates, and conversion by introducing star ratings across paid and organic Google search results. And even better, Reviews.io integrates with 30 online platforms. For your free product demo, sign up now at Reviews.io or search reviews.io in the Salesforce app exchange and listeners get a free 30-day trial by simply mentioning the podcast when they sign up. And last but by no means least, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform. Fusebill ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Hi, Harry. The tip for this week is to assign everyone in 
rating your company with a quarterly number. This ensures that everyone from the top down is rowing in the same direction. Report on the progress of these numbers in your one-on-ones and management meetings, then reset every quarter. You will be amazed at how powerful your team can be if everyone is focused on a quantifiable goal every quarter. Heck, add a monetary incentive to it and see records get broken. Totally with Tyler on that one. And measurable objectives with incentives are a great way to drive growth. And you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you another set of exceptional episodes next week.